ahead and get started with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do come before you giving you thanks and praise for the great privilege we have to come together as the body of Christ. Thank you for your scriptures and the way they speak to us, the way they guide our thinking. Father, help us to yield to the scriptures when they oppose uh, what we currently think or where we think we've got it figured out, but the scriptures uh, trump us in every way. So we thank you for that and uh, give us the wisdom to uh, always submit to the teaching of, of scripture. And Lord, I thank you for these people and their willingness to come week after week. Pray that you would bless them for that. And Lord, that uh, everything we would do, everything we would speak this morning would be to your praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is week number 17 in our study of the book of Daniel. And last week we looked at most of chapter 6, left just the few, last few verses. And this chapter contains the well-known story of Daniel in the lion's den, something that if you've grown up in church, you studied from when you were a very, very young person. But the story is all about Daniel's faithfulness and then coupled with that, his trust in the Lord. Um, because Daniel didn't know when he went into the lion's den if he was going to come out or not. I mean, that's very clear that uh, the probability is that he would not come out. Um, this whole chapter is about um, Daniel's relationship with Darius and then with all the other people in Darius's kingdom. You remember Darius set up uh, three commissioners over his uh, kingdom and underneath those co commissioners were 70 satraps. And the scripture here, and we'll look at this a little bit this morning, say that all the satraps and the two commissioners were opposed to Daniel. So they, uh, the reason was because Darius was going to put Daniel as number two in his kingdom, meaning he'd be over the commissioners and all the satraps, not just some of them. And so uh, that was a public uh, apparent uh, plan because they all knew about it. And so they devised an evil plan to come against Daniel and uh, tricked Darius into signing an injunction um, that anybody who petitioned, made a petition to anybody other than Darius for the next 30 days would be thrown into the lion's den. And of course, Daniel, uh, knowing that the petition had been uh, proclaimed, um, still remained in his faithfulness and praying to God three times a day. And so he was caught, um, accused before Darius. Darius didn't want to throw him into the den, but ultimately he had to because the law, uh, an injunction made by a king can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so Daniel got thrown into the lion's den. And then the next morning when Darius went to see him, Daniel said that God sent an angel to close the lion's mouth. And that's a plural. There are multiple lions in this den, as we'll see in a, in a couple of minutes. And so um, Darius is delighted. And that's where I want to pick up this morning, verse 23, where Darius has come to Daniel after the um, 
after he spent the night in the lion's den. And by the way, if you ever have seen a picture of this, an artist's rendering of this, it always shows Daniel as a very young man, right? Well, this is the year at least 539 BC. Daniel was taken into captivity in 605 BC. So it's been 66 years. And he was probably a mid-teenager when he went in. So Daniel's in his 80s, regardless of what the artists draw. They always show him as a young man, you know, and the lions over there and the angels over here. And he's not. He's an old dude. Okay, very old. Um, probably somewhat feeble. But nevertheless, um, he spent the night there. And in verse 23 of chapter 6, the scripture says, Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury, whatever, was found on him because he had trusted in God. So you notice that, is there a cause and effect here? I mean, God could have done whatever he wanted to. He could have left Daniel to be eaten by the lions. And there have been plenty of people who, through history, have died a horrible death because of their faith in God or in Jesus Christ. Um, so God didn't have to rescue Daniel, but he did because he had other things for Daniel to do. And that was mainly to write, first to write the whole book, and then the vision that comes in chapter 9 to the end of the book is probably after this event happened. So if Daniel hadn't lived, we wouldn't have that um, that vision that he had. Don't, he had previously written down um, the first two visions that he had. The scripture says that, that as soon as he had them, he wrote them down. But who knows if they would have been held together in a book like what we have today. So God had other reasons for saving Daniel, of which we're thankful. But the king himself was delighted. So this, again, we talked about this, shows the relationship between Daniel and, and Darius. It's one of endearment, it's close. Um, it's, um, it's more than just a commissioner and a king because the king could have cared less, you know, typically of if someone died or not. I mean, he's the one that signed the injunction saying they would be killed. So there's this relationship. And, and I think we see more of that here a little bit later in this chapter. Now, verse 24, um, the king gave, then gave orders and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed their bones. So this shows a couple of things. First of all, that the lions didn't attack Daniel because they were tired or filled or whatever. I mean, these are lions, right? And so um, it was supernatural that they didn't attack Daniel. So there are a lot of people who say, no, they were just tired. <laughs> okay. Um, but then I want to look back, verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, and just notice a couple of things. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one. 
Okay, so there's 123 people at least in charge, right? 120 satraps and then three commissioners above them. And then Darius was going to elevate Daniel over everybody. Um, didn't get a chance to do that because of what happens here. Now, also look down in verses 6 and 7. And I think the scripture is pretty clear here. Then these commissioners and satraps, by agreement to the king, came to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together. So they don't exclude any of them. They actually add a few people here, uh, the governors and other officials. But we know this, that there's at least 122 men who are joined together against Daniel, going to the king to trick him into this injunction. So when it comes to verse 24, when the king throws those who had a malicious plot against Daniel into the lion's den, there's at least 122 of them. And not only that, he throws their wives in and their children. So just assume they each had two children. That's almost 500 people who get thrown into the lion's den. This is pretty harsh. And you can just imagine the chaos, right? People screaming because they know they're going to get thrown in. Uh, women holding their babies because they're going to go in there too. Little small children being tossed into the lion's den. I mean, this is a horrendous, horrendous thought. I mean, you never get that when you're a little kid and they're teaching this to you, right? That 500 people, including people your age, went into the lion's den and were mauled to death by lions. And then probably for the next few days, the lions had a pretty good feast because there's 500 people and they're all killed. It says they didn't even get all the way down to the bottom, you know, to the floor of the lion's den. The lions had already pounced on them. So uh, this is a horrendous, horrendous thought. Um, and if the angel had not shut the lion's mouths, they would have done the same thing to Daniel. So um, pretty remarkable that Daniel comes out of this. And now, think about it, Daniel was going to be put in charge of everybody, right? Well, there is nobody now. They're all dead. All the satraps, the other two commissioners, have been wiped out. So all there's left is Daniel and the king. So Daniel, again, very privileged in the kingdom. I don't know if he went and got other satraps and, you know, found some people he could appoint, uh, probably. Um, but Daniel is the only guy left at the end of this. So all the others are killed, and, and their wives and their children, too. So this is, uh, this is pretty over the top. Um, you know, it's clear that these guys did not disobey the injunction and yet they got the penalty for disobeying the injunction. King can do whatever he wants to. And so he has them thrown into the, the pit and they all die a 
a pretty horrible death at that. And then Darius, being moved by all of this, um, wrote to all the people, verse 25. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this decree goes out to everybody that Darius can reach, all peoples, all nations, uh, people of all languages. So this is a, a great proclamation. And you remember Nebuchadnezzar had one of these. It's contained in chapter four. The whole chapter is Nebuchadnezzar's proclamation to all the nations. And when he started it the same way. So this must be the way that you start a proclamation where he says, may peace abound. It's the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar said. You can see it back in, I always take a chance when I do this. Back in chapter four, yeah, verse one, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. So this is the way the king addresses his people. He, may your peace abound. And so he says the same thing. And then I'm kind of shocked, really, at what Darius writes, because you wonder how he knew this stuff. I mean, some of it he knew in his proclamation. He knew because of what had just happened to Daniel. For instance, um, when he says, what does he say? Um, verse 27, he delivers and rescues. That that was clear, right? Because he had delivered and rescued Daniel. And he even says that at the end of verse 27, who also has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. But this other stuff that's in here, the living God, enduring forever, his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion is forever. How did he know that? I mean, that didn't, we don't have any place. I mean, he's only been king for a short period of time. He set up his government, but how does he know these other things that he proclaims? They're clearly not in the rescuing of Daniel. So I summarize that Daniel had told him these things that Daniel had revealed these things to him. As, I mean, Daniel's a very faithful guy. His worship of the one true God is very public. Everybody knows about it. Not that he was doing that so everybody would know about it. It's just he was full of God, and it showed in everything that he did. And so I just suppose that Daniel had testified these things to Darius, and, I mean, Darius would look at him and say, why is it that you're so much better than all the other guys? Because it was clear to Darius that he was. 
And Daniel would then give praise to God because he knew that's the reason he was better than all the other guys. And so these things that King Darius proclaims had to come from Daniel. There's nobody else who's going to tell him. I mean, all these other guys were opposed to the God of Daniel. And so there's only Daniel. Um, so again, we see the faithfulness of Daniel to proclaim the truth of God, even to the king who could have him killed at any, any moment that he wanted to. It's just like what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar knew a lot of things about God, some that God taught him, but remember that he taught him those things through the ministry of Daniel. I mean, Daniel's the one who prophesied through the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had that he would go insane and then, then God would restore him. So I don't think Darius is where Nebuchadnezzar was because he doesn't say that I have anything personal with this God. He still calls him the God of Daniel as opposed to saying the true God like Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar called him the most holy God and the things that he has done for me. But Darius doesn't get to that point. He may have later, we don't know. He dies not too long after this, believed he died in the first um, two years after Babylon fell. So it can't be much longer that he lives, but he at least got what he said right. I mean, his proclamation is true and right and accurate that the kingdom of God um, will endure forever. Even though it's not obvious today that that's true, it is true. Um, and that he, his dominion over everything will go on forever and ever. And this just goes back to the theme of Daniel, right? Where he said that it's God who removes kings and God who establishes kings. This is the part of the theme of Daniel. And, and Darius understands this. Darius knew that his kingdom wouldn't go on forever. I mean, men die, right? I mean, that's what happens to them. They return to the dust. But here he says that God's kingdom endures forever. So that, that testimony had to come from Daniel. So you, you read on down in verse 28. And so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. One of the reasons I believe that they both reigned is this verse, that they were co-regents for a short time for a couple of years, and then ultimately Cyrus um, inherited the throne of Daniel, and there were no more Median kings. Um, that comes out of uh, the cuneiforms, that comes out of the writings of Herodotus, that comes out of the writings of Xenophon, that none, there were no more Median kings, and Herodotus stops at two kings earlier than this, but um, anyway, this is the last Median king is King Darius. Um, the Persian kings would use this name, Darius, later. Uh, we see that in the writings. You saw it in the, when uh, John David preached Haggai, that the king was called Darius, even there, because that's a Persian king, um, allowing the Israelites to continue to build the, the temple, and yet he's called Darius, which is a Median name. 
So this became a throne name, um, just like emperor or president or anything like that. Um, it's just what they called the king was Darius. So um, the story ends there. We, Darius is no longer on the scene. There's only a reference made to him in chapter 9 um, to give us a time frame reference. But um, we don't know what uh, Darius is no longer seen. It's just Cyrus the Persian who's seen in scripture after this and in, uh, in the other writings. You can go to um, many of the other minor prophets and see the same events, same names, same things happening. Um, so Darius is now off out of the picture. And I've told you this before, but in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, Daniel writes in third person. He calls himself Daniel. So, um, and that was uniform through the first six chapters. He starts at chapter seven the same way that he, the first verse is written in third person, but after that, he begins to write in first person. And so this is things that Daniel saw and wrote down and that he now relates in first person. And a lot of people get sideways in chapter seven and eight. And I actually think they're very straightforward, not hard to follow. Um, chapter seven is about four kingdoms. And those four kingdoms match the four kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the great statue. And then chapter eight is just about two. It's a subset of those kingdoms. And it's the middle two. But a lot of detail is given, especially about the third kingdom of the four in chapter eight. Things that there's no way that Daniel could have known. And one of the reasons that people say this book was written in the one to two hundreds, because this would have been known then, but not now, not in the five hundreds where Daniel's at. So we'll walk through those things, but that's the way to frame them, is that chapter seven matches chapter two when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream. Matter of fact, that's where I want to go back and start before we get to chapter eight, seven. So go back to chapter two, and let's just quickly review a couple of things that we saw there, and it'll set the framework for what you see in chapter seven, because they're parallel. They match one another. You notice in, you remember this is the story in chapter two about, um, the great statue that was glorious and full of splendor that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And it was made of multiple materials. The head was made of gold. Um, the breast and arms are made of silver. The belly and the thighs are made of bronze. The legs are made of iron. The feet are made, uh, really the feet themselves are made of iron. The toes are iron and clay. Okay, so he saw this great statue, and then you'll remember that a stone cut without hands, meaning man didn't make this, God did, comes and pulverizes the statue, knocks it over, 
and then pulverizes it to such a degree that when the wind blows, it's like chaff and it's just scattered like dust. And it is no more and there's no remains left of it. And so this is the vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw that Daniel interpreted. And so Daniel's interpretation is what I want to look at. And I don't want to look at the whole thing. I just want to look at a couple of verses. The whole interpretation is given in 10 verses, 36 through 45 of chapter 2. But I just want to look at a little bit of this. You, um, you see at the end of verse 38, well, I'll just read the whole verse. And whenever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So it's very clear that the head is the Babylonian kingdom. All right, then he goes on in verse 39. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So very quickly in that verse, he gives the next two kingdoms. And we've said um, that the next kingdom that we know in history is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then the one after, they rule for about 200 years and the one after them is then Greece. So this is, in my mind, Medo-Persia and Greece. And when we get to chapter seven and eight, Daniel's, the angels who interpret to Daniel what he sees explicitly say that, that it's Medo-Persia and Greece. And we'll see that as we walk through those chapters. I mean, there's no lack of clarity in what chapter seven and eight say. So here we just have a kingdom that's inferior to the Babylonian kingdom and then another kingdom after that. And it's true that Medo-Persia did not occupy as much territory as Babylon did. Very clear in the writings and in what we know about history. And so they're inferior. Now Greece, not inferior. <laughs> But uh, we'll get there in due time. And then he goes on and he says um, in verse 2, uh, where is it? He goes on and he talks about the next kingdom, verse 40. Then there will arise a fourth kingdom as strong as iron that matches the statue. Inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so that like iron breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. So the iron comes and demolishes what was before it, which was the third kingdom. This is the fourth kingdom. And this is the last kingdom in the statue, because this is the legs of iron and the feet of iron and the toes of iron and clay. And the next one that comes is the fifth kingdom, you could say, but that's the divine kingdom, the one that demolishes all these others. So these four kingdoms that you see here in the statue are again discussed in chapter seven. 
That is what chapter 7 is all about. And Daniel knew some of these things because he had seen this vision, remember, that Nebuchadnezzar did not relate the vision to him. God allowed him to see the vision and then the interpretation. Because this is the time when Nebuchadnezzar unreasonably said, tell me my vision and tell me its interpretation. And Daniel was able to do that. So Daniel actually saw this vision. He's not just giving an interpretation. Okay, so then we go over and we look at chapters 7 and 8 and even a little bit of 9. Notice the time frame references that are given in these chapters. Um, we know when they occurred, and it's somewhat surprising to me. In chapter 7 and verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then notice, then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. And then he starts talking in first person. Daniel said, I was looking up. So this is a dream that Daniel had in the first year of Belshazzar. Now, we know that, um, that Belshazzar reigned for 11 years and that he, reigned, he was still reigning in 539. So that puts it back to 550 was when he began to reign. Nabonidus, his dad, began to reign in 55, 550, 555 is when he began to reign. He reigned for five years and then went into exile for some reason that I don't know and appointed Belshazzar to be king and then they were kind of like co-regents. Nabonidus from exile and Belshazzar as actually in the kingdom. And so he began to reign in 550 BC. So when Daniel comes to chapter seven, in the first year of Belshazzar, it's somewhere between 550 and 549 BC. So this is much before what just happened in the lion's den. It's 11 or 12 years before that. So Daniel's had this vision and he had written it down several years before we come to Daniel in the lion's den. And then notice chapter 8, and you get something similar, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Well, of course it's subsequent, right? Because it's the third year of Belshazzar. So still nine years or so before Daniel goes into the lion's den. And you just assume that when he had this vision that he did like he did when he had his first vision and he wrote it down so he could remember it because it's so bizarre um, what, he, what he actually sees. And then you go to chapter nine and all these, Daniel's given us these time frame references to help us to understand chapter nine in the first year, year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, pretty clear, right? Those who would debate with us that Daniel knew Darius the king 
and that he was over Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. So, but notice that that gets us back to where we left off with Daniel in the lion's den. It's in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. So, Daniel rewinds back to the beginning of Belshazzar, then two years later, and then back to where we were. So, interesting that these vision, you know, Daniel kind of goes off the scene when Nabonidus and Belshazzar are king. We don't see, there's nothing written about him. So he's kind of off the scene, but he's out there having these visions and writing them down to preserve them for us. Now, a lot of people get upset with chapter seven and eight, but I can tell you there's no reason to, because he does have this bizarre vision. But then one of the people in the vision, probably an angel, gives him the interpretation of what he just saw. Then he has another vision two years later, and one of the people in the vision, probably another angel, gives him the interpretation of what he just saw. So it's not like these things are obscure and you gotta wonder what they mean, because the interpretations are given in the scriptures. And it's very clear, it's explicit even, as to what we've seen. So there's no, now you get to chapter nine and it's a different story. Okay, I'll tell you that. Chapter nine is a different story because we're not so much given the interpretation of exactly what it means. But these two are straightforward. And there's a lot of people, and I don't know why, who say these are not about the same kingdoms. But I think it's pretty clear they are about the same kingdoms. So we'll, we'll walk through this in excruciating detail. We won't spend much time in what the vision was, but we'll spend most of our time in what the interpretation of the vision was. Because the vision is the vision. And um, the interpretation is where we gain understanding. So we'll begin in chapter seven next time, and uh, we'll get all the way through the vision because there's not a lot there. And then we'll get into the interpretation. Now notice that, I'll just show you this and then we'll know. In verse three of chapter seven, and four great beasts were coming up out of the sea, different from one another. This is like the, the head of gold, the shoulders and arms of, or the chest and arms of silver. They're different from one another, but they're still dominating kingdoms. And there's four of them, which matches the four that come up in the statue. They're the same four. And so this is parallel to chapter two. And next time we'll see that it's pretty clear that these are parallel. Even the fifth kingdom, the divine kingdom, is seen in this chapter. So we'll pick up there next time and see if we can make some sense of the chaos. Thanks for your time.